As far as I'm concerned, as long as that same respect and recognition is not shown toward every one of our people in this country, it doesn't exist for me. And during the few moments that we have left, we want to have just an off-the-cuff chat between you and me, us. We want to talk right down to earth in a language that everybody here can easily understand. Welcome back to another episode of The Malcolm Effect. Once again, I am super excited to be speaking to one of my favorite people about one of my favorite people. So today joining me, we have none other than Quincy Jallo to speak about James Baldwin. How are you, my brother? I'm doing well. How are you? Thank you for having me on. Thanks for the kind words. Absolute pleasure. This episode has been one in the making for quite some time. Quincy is very hard to get a hold of. So finally, he has decided to grace us with his presence on The Malcolm Effect. It's an honor for us and all our listeners. So speaking about all things James Baldwin, someone whose literary output remains an enduring muse for my own scholarship, and I could only hope to be a fraction of the literary genius he is. As someone who also has taken an interest in James Baldwin for quite some time, from far longer than I have, I guess for our listeners, what was your first exposure to James Baldwin and what was your reaction? Yeah, so I think that my first exposure to Baldwin, there was a film about him called um, I'm Not Your Negro. I don't remember what year that came out, but uh, my mom went to go see an advanced screening of it. I was really jealous just because I'd heard <laughs> the name over and over again. And I realized that I realized sort of then that like I was kind of a fucking like poser and that I hadn't actually exposed myself to his work the way that I was supposed to. Mm-hmm. So I sort of just tried to dive in from there and then it really hardened and I became more steadfast in my reading of his work and more dedicated to writing about his work and stuff um, as I approached college. So like four or five years ago, I really like dove in, I would say, but I've been exposed for longer than that. Okay. So immediately once you start to begin to dive in to James Baldwin, what are some of the things you immediately notice or what are some of the things that immediately capture you and get your attention? I think that he was very patient and forgiving of, you know, who he would call, who he would refer to as his countrymen, you know, white Americans and all of that in a way that was really, really interesting to me at that time, just because I was a jaded kid, angsty teenager, Mm -hmm. and was just like, couldn't get on that page really until I read his work and sort of came to at least try to understand white people through his eyes. And it really Mm -hmm. calmed me down, gave me a level of hope and peace that I valued. And then really his perspective on like love, if nothing else, both as a, in the interpersonal sense and the religious sense in most importantly to me, the political sense really just, busted my world wide open 
and changed how I approached everything in life, really. I'm loving that. I'm loving that James Baldwin as Praxis. You've opened up a new dimension or another dimension actually to look into and how we engage figures. Oftentimes I find that when we speak of black literary heroes, we often have hagiographical accounts of them, deservedly so, in which we praise them, in which we extol their many virtues. But oftentimes one thing I like to bring people back to is we're trying to engage such figures as great as they are, but as people or theory. And theory does not have to be the old dead Russian niggers, as one meme and tweet said. (laughs) Theory comes in many other forms. And one of the things I like about James Baldwin, as you just brilliantly put out, is how we engage him as as a person of theory. So I guess for those who may not be as aware as James Baldwin, and again, this won't do it justice and I encourage people to read more. But briefly, let's speak about his life. What are some of the key moments you think we should highlight when speaking about James Baldwin's biography? I think that you can't read any of his work, watch any of his videos without the context of the Harlem that he grew up in. Like, mm-hmm. I think that that is, if not the most important thing about sort of the formation of his identity and really just the, pardon me, the like way that he built his life and everything and the way that he reacted to the world and the way that he, you know, became sort of highly critical and theoretical in the not necessarily super quote unquote academic sense or, you know, not in the old Russian kind of sense is his upbringing in Harlem and his upbringing in the church, very important, his queerness, very important. And his time as an expat is sort of vital to understanding him as well as his, finally, his close relationship with key civil rights figures in a way that I think a lot of times because of his impulse to understand and even at times forgive his countrymen gets obscured, Mm -hmm. like his relationship with, you know, the namesake of this podcast, you know, Malcolm X was absolutely, as he described it, it, there was an esteem between them that could only be really described as a love. I'm paraphrasing, but that's from No Name in the Street. Uh, my mm-hmm. favorite Baldwin essay. Um, and yeah, I think that it's sort of important to consider Ooh, can those. You hear me? Yeah, can you hear me? Oh, sorry. Okay, yeah, I think you stopped talking. It's fine. Thank you so much for that. In terms of, we've spoken about the myriad ways in which Baldwin viewed love from the political, spiritual, interpersonal. So I guess let's unpack those further and let's speak to those three registers, the political the spiritual and the interpersonal. How do you think Baldwin would have, how do you think Baldwin understood and would have explained love on those three registers? Let's take it one by one. Yeah. So I'll start with the spiritual because I was really informed by his upbringing and eventual departure from the black church that he grew up in and the very religious, pious family, you know, son of a preacher type of family that he came from, in that, you know, you're taught in environments like that to love 
God first and really love and serve God above all else. And I think that his departure, which was in part, of course, motivated by his queerness, was that was a desire, a deep desire to be worldly, a deep desire to fall in love with, you know, the world and to learn how to love himself in a country, in a family, in a church, et cetera, et cetera, which rejected him. So I think that loving the self for him, or at least coming to terms with who he was, really was an act for him of a spiritual kind of love, you know, and all of the three of them sort of work together. But I would say, yeah, the spiritual love is very pious in a sense, or very, like, very much informed by the Christian idea of, you know, Christian ideals of loving thy neighbor. And ultimately just was a question, is ultimately just a question of respect. And on the interpersonal, I think that... Before you carry on the interpersonal, let's just go deeper into the religious then and spiritual. Given that it's somewhat so heavily informed by his upbringing, his Christian upbringing, but also he's having to navigate his queerness, his sexuality with what's happening in the church. How do how did he navigate this? Like what in what where does it come out? Or how does it come out? How does he deal with these tensions? I think that you can really trace it back to or the way I sort of see it is his semi-autobiographical first novel, Go Tell It on the Mountain, which he said he had to write if he was ever gonna write anything else. And the conflation of his queerness with sin, you know, the character, the character John, who's coming of age, who's based on Baldwin himself, uh, his first, the first time that he masturbates in the book, it's to these fantasies about the older boys in his school. And, Mm -hmm. you know, there's a scene which I can't even begin to capture the eloquence of the language and description where he wrestles with an older boy that he seems to have a crush on literally in the church and the imagery, the words that Baldwin used to describe it are very sexually charged. And the idea of the, this great sin, this, you know, unpious lust in the house of God, is sort of what informed that spiritual love and that for him, he was willing to, even though he pushed back on often and questioned his religion, he was willing to forsake, you know, eternity, the kingdom of heaven, to experience the worldly present kind of love. And I think that that's sort of where I think of on the spiritual level, that's what that means and how it interacted with his religion. It wasn't necessarily that they were one and the same and that he loved God the way that he was quote unquote supposed to, but it was in his defiance where that spiritual sort of love arose. Mm, that was beautifully explained. <laughs> Thank you very much for that. And I'm glad I cut you off to going deeper because that was, I was like snapping my fingers whilst hearing to your response. <laughs> so speaking about the next two then, the political and interpersonal, what was Baldwin's engagement with these questions through his works and how did he explain them and understand them? Yeah, to add to you know, your original question first, I think that one of the other things that I really love about Baldwin and that was really important to me 
coming to his work at the age that I did was his description of love first as the way that parents treat their children and the way that children react to their parents. You know, he writes coming of age in a way that nobody else that I've read really has. And I think on the interpersonal level, a lot of times for Baldwin, love meant a kind of protection, whether that was a protection from the harshness of, you know, the life of pre-civil rights movement Harlem and pre-gentrification Harlem and all of that, or it was a protection from, you know, white terror or whether it was protection from even his abusive father, right? Like as carried out by his mother, his grandmother, and, you know, eventually in whatever romantic relationships or friendships that he has, like love is in many ways about protection and what precedes the interpersonal love almost always in Baldwin's texts is this idea of knowing, you know, this idea of intimacy, like knowing someone when they're naked that appears Mm -hmm. often and over and over in his work, Um, naked in not just the physical sense, obviously, but, you know, the emotional sense, the vulnerability of a newborn child or, the, you know, emotional intimacy between lovers, that sort of idea that someone is going, someone can know you, accept you, and protect you from the harshness of the world, protect your nakedness from those who wish to do you harm or those who wish to exploit it is really foundational, in my opinion, to how Baldwin sort of discusses that interpersonal love and approaches interpersonal love, that idea of protection and acceptance, knowing, taking the effort to know some, to truly know somebody, to know unassailable and like concealed truths about that person is requirement, a prerequisite for loving them. Once again, thank you so much for that beautiful response. And then I know these are somewhat all intertwined, but let's speak more about the political. So this act of love as mediated through the political, how did James Baldwin understand this and how did he write about this? Yeah, so I think that clip has been, clip of him discussing love. um, Giovanni, Nikki Giovanni. I believe so, has been circulated like more widely about the love has never been a popular movement. Oh, yes, that one. Okay, That quote, yeah, yeah, yeah. That's the one that I think is very telling about his conceptualization of love as political, right? Like, even to describe love, this sort of ambiguous and ill-defined concept as a movement. You know, movements Mm -hmm. require action. And I think that that's what ties together loving for Baldwin as the spiritual, political, and interpersonal is that there is some kind of an act, some kind of a dedication to carrying out and leading with love in a way that you know is going to be challenged. And so I think that that's where my sort of idea of love as a political comes from, in that there's a level of resistance required to be a lover in the world. You know what I mean? And I think that that's just 
there's no question about resistance being inherently political, right? So I think when yeah. you, when that's your sort of conceptualization of it, like it's, you have no choice but to think of love as political. And, you know, he writes it not just in describing the interpersonal reactions to, you know, the civil rights leaders or the Algerians in France or, mm-hmm. you know, the people he, the saints and sinners that he grew up surrounded by in Harlem. But I totally lost my train of thought. Anyway, sort of conceptualizes love as a popular movement, as the the sum of its parts. You know what I mean? As like, yes, he had a deep and unflinching emotional, spiritual connection and interpersonal relationships with people like Malcolm X and Dr. King, but also that they shaped him, they changed him. And that's sort of where my idea of love as a political comes from, in that Mm -hmm. he chose to reject the things that he sort of, you know, might have idolized as a kid, you know, he sort of chose to reject, especially as described in No Name in the Street, as the, uh, just, he walked away from the table, you know what I mean? He walked away from American intellectualism and liberalism and chose love when he realized that power had robbed them of their humanity in such Mm -hmm. a way where they weren't necessarily capable of loving their fellow man the way that he was because they weren't capable of or did not care to know their fellow man you know they didn't care to know the blacks from harlem who you know served them who raised their children who suffered and toiled for years and who fled the south that wasn't important to them so much as retaining their power was and i think that when it came down to it and it's especially written about like I said, in No Name in the Street more than anything else in the Love is Political, is that love, especially when it's born of a shared struggle, not necessarily just identity, but a commitment to a shared struggle, a commitment to resistance, that's the enemy of power and especially the enemy of, you know, capitalist, colonialist, imperialist power. I think that's sort of just... Thank you. No, no, thank you so much for that. Thank you so much for that thorough explanation and explication of those free registers and Borden's engagement with them and how to read love mediated through the political, interpersonal and spiritual. So then let's speak about Baldwin as a political theorist. And in doing so, we understand that Baldwin very much has so many critiques on the institutions in which black people frequent. So, for example, the church being one institution amongst many. He also has that famous speech where he's like, I don't know what white people feel like, but I know I'm not in their unions. And, you know, he speaks about like, this is the evidence, for example. And you, what you yeah. find in that is that Baldwin offers a systemic critique of the institutions. So I guess my question to you is then, how and why does Baldwin explore the interplay between systemic racism, the church, religion, and then contemporary black attitudes regarding queerness, for example? Yeah, great question. I appreciate it. I think that a lot of times the way that he writes about it, especially in the first, you know, the intro to 
go tell it on the mountain is the dichotomy between the saints and the sinners and really like mm-hmm. he'll juxtapose descriptions of you know the prostitutes and drug addicts and gangsters or whatever that frequented the streets of harlem at night versus the saints who rose to go to church in on sunday mornings right and i think that what he does over and over is challenge this idea of righteousness and in putting them right next to each other and then zooming out right say you're like a white a white person from manhattan the time mm-hmm. you know at the same time that go telling on the mountain is taken it doesn't necessarily matter who's righteous or not like what has that done for the so-called saints in harlem right they claim that they're it's the way that he sort of just exposes like yeah you claim that you're better than really these people who should be your comrades and compatriots and you condemn them in a way that if you really think about what the text says you know humans don't have a right to do that's only god's decision right it's god's decision to condemn who he condemns and exonerate who he exonerates and so that i i think that it's for baldwin big part of his rejection of the black church politically was that it was divisive and that it was sort of being used in the same way that you know the first quote-unquote christians who arrived in america did it was used to it was used for the purpose of establishing some kind of a superiority or hierarchy that i think he felt often felt was inextricable from the church in america because you know that was the first it was it's the origins of the church in america is indian genocide and enslavement of blacks right mm-hmm. i think that what he was saying a lot of times is that that legacy is being is carried on and you know you'll see the his preacher father in go tell it on the mountain or i should say uh, john's preacher father curse his children and beat his children and you'll see the pastor of the church humiliate his nephew and other members of his congregation in the quote-unquote name of the Lord. And I think that that as a, in the sort of, you know, the burgeoning quote-unquote civil rights movement Mm -hmm. was just divisive in a way that Baldwin really couldn't forgive by the time he left. Yeah. No, thank you for that. Thank you for that. So what we're seeing that is Baldwin's critique of the system, the institutions in which black people frequent are also the same systems and same institutions that perpetuate the oppression of several segments of the black community or black communities. Now, thank you for that. So that leads quite brilliantly onto my next question then. Given that Baldwin has this critique of institutions and then the way they are have a hand in the oppression of so many black folk, black communities, black community, and that is controversial as to whether we say black community or black communities, I guess the obvious question here is, does a black community exist in Baldwin's archive? I'm going to hesitantly 
say no. I've just sort of, I'm just writing a paper about that, just sort of started research for that, like actually a week ago. And so I don't want to overcommit to the no, but I'm going to say like cautiously, no. I think that communities is a better, a better like qualifier for it in that there is no overarching all black people in we'll keep it pegged to the u.s for now like all black people in the u.s are in community with each other right it's that the black community is split up among a whole bunch of different casts of people you know there's black community among the you know so-called like intelligentsia there's black community most often in his work and i guess a lot of times even in the quote unquote real worlds where we find it is in the church. In fact, like those are communities, but even, you know, a church two blocks from another one, those people aren't necessarily going to be in community with each other. They're not going to be communicating with each other. They're not going to necessarily be, you know, they're not going to claim them as their brothers and sisters. You know, there's black community in the among the Panthers, you know, and other yeah. resistance movements among the students, et cetera, et cetera. There's communities all over the place. And, you know, there's even community among the dope dealers and the prostitutes, right? Mm-hmm. There's communities all over the place. And while they have their oppression in common, that takes different forms and different shapes for all of them. So you can't even necessarily, I think that as he exposes that there's an implicit agreement that you can't even say that the black, there's a black community created by suffering alone. Like that's not going to work. It's like a return to the idea of love as necessary and as, you know, understanding and knowing as a as a prerequisite for it, right? Like if the saints refuse to know or attempt to understand the sinners, how can they be in community with them? That's no, absolutely. Absolutely. So thank you so much for that explanation. And I guess in closing then, talk to me about some of the key texts or some of the texts that you have found to be the most memorable for you and why? Yeah. Of his fictional work, I would say Go Tell It on the Mountain is uh, very near and dear to my heart, just because I think that, as he said himself, he needed to write this to understand him. And I think that for readers, that's no different. You know, really, if you want to understand Baldwin, understand his motivations, where he comes from, how he came to be, then Go Tell It on the Mountain is essential. Um, I think that though I have my issues with the way it's been presented since 2020 and the uprisings and riots and stuff after George Floyd was lynched, The Fire Next Time is an essential nonfiction work of his. And I would suggest, honestly, that one reads The Fire Next Time and then No Name in the Street right after, just because you can see what those years did to him politically, personally, et cetera, et cetera. You can see how he changed and how his, really, you see the 
evolution of his politic in a way that I think is very, very compelling. Um, I've always been a hu- uh, more partial to nonfiction than fiction mm-hmm. um, for whatever reason. But if I had to give one more, I would say I really, really loved... I love that Beale Street could talk. I really, really loved uh, Giovanni's room. It's sort of a further one of my favorites. His own, <laughs> yeah, further like excavation into his own queerness um, as an as an adult. Because I think Go Tell on the Mountain really centers on you know sort of him trying to even understand his queerness as a as a kid. In addition to his life, brilliant. Of and anything else you want to let the listeners know about this brilliant man that we haven't covered already? Yeah. I would say just to circle back to the, you know, the love thing, the theme of this conversation episode, whatever, like, it's also really, really important to remember and important to keep an eye out for when you're reading him, like the dichotomy, like he really is the exemplification of that thin line between love and hate. And I think that that's really essential to understanding how he writes about and what he really thought about, if not his generation or the generation after him, the generation before him and how they came to hate white people and his hopes for the next generation in that idea of, you know, like he wrote in my dungeon shook letter to my nephew, which is two pages. Everyone listening should literally like read it today. even if you've read it, it served as the prefix for the preface for fire next time, but a letter to his nephew where he says that his 15 year old black nephew has to accept white people. And like on the sort of on the eve, the historical eve of integration in the United States that he must, that his nephew, the downtrodden spin on black youth, poor black youth has to, love and accept white people for the same reasons that like we as black people might be inclined to hate them you know we have to accept them because accept and love them because their power and the hate that it's wrought for them has also rotted their minds and robbed them of their right to being human in a way that's just always gorgeously presented and extremely interesting to watch him negotiate that sort of love and hate, even in, when he discusses his own father and, you know, the pity he felt for his mother and all of that. Thank you so much. This has been, I hope this serves as an introduction. Again, we can never do Baldwin justice in several hours, months and years, actually. So this is just to hopefully serve as a brief introduction, get people's palette a bit wet so they can be intrigued and interested further. And I will leave Quincy's socials in the comments. Please get in contact with him and he can direct you further. Until next time, people, peace out. Thank you.